Morning. My name is Brian, and I'm going to read from John chapter 7. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee, purposely staying away from Judea, because the Jews there were waiting to take his life. But when the Jewish, Jewish feast of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, You ought to leave here and go to Judea, so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore, Jesus told them, The right time for me has not yet come. For you, any time is right. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify that what it does is evil. You go to the feast. I'm not yet going up to this feast, because for me, the right time has not yet come. Having said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the feast, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the feast, the Jews were watching for him and asking, Where is that man? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, He's a good man. Others replied, No, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the Jews. Verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Thanks, Brian. Good morning, everybody. Okay, this is a, a fascinating chapter. John chapter 7 is absolutely a fast. I've been more and more interested and fascinated by it as the weeks leading up to this. So the title of the message is How to Win Every Time. How to win. Something about that word win is not, like if you say it, win, you almost have to smile when you say it. Try it. Win. win. You, you kind of smile a little bit. How do you win every time? So before we get into the, uh, there's a fill in the blank there on the back of your bulletin. It's zoe. That is the Greek word for life. There's a couple different words for life in Greek. This one is important. We've been talking about it, but just want to get a little more specific with it. It's a high quality living. It's not just breathing. It's not just existing. Zoe, to have zoe life, to have like this living water pouring out of you so much that other people around you are affected by it. It's like, oh my goodness, what's, what's wrong with him? What's wrong with her? I, when I'm around them, I just, I just feel like I come alive too. Th this is what we're talking about. That, that amount of life that comes from within. Not without. It's not like, oh, he's, he's a good perky person. He's really peppy. He's a really upbeat or she's really upbeat. They have just such a great attitude. There's something different about this Zoe because it comes from within. Okay, how to win every time. A little bit of background, and then we're going to focus on, I, there's a couple things that really bring this chapter to understanding that we're going to focus on, but let's do, some, let's do some context first. So what you have here is Jesus is being asked by his brothers. Now, we're told in the scriptures he had four younger brothers, he had four younger brothers, and that's James and Joseph, Simon and Judas, and that's in Matthew 13, we're told about that. These brothers come to Jesus, and they say, hey, look, You've got to go to the Feast of Tabernacles. We see this in verses 2 and 3. Go to the feast. So what's the Feast of Tabernacles? Well, you might be surprised because I was totally surprised. The Feast of Tabernacles is the most popular, the most well-attended feast. There's three main feasts that they, celebrate in that they celebrate in Judaism. 
And that is Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. And I always thought, well, it must be Passover must be the most popular, but it's not. Tabernacles is. What's Tabernacles? Tabernacles is like camping. Does anybody like to camp? Anybody like to camp? They, they, I hate camping. So what they, what they would do is they would remember the 40 years they spent in the desert in tents. And they would camp for one week. They would go to Jerusalem. People from all over Israel would come to Jerusalem. And if you lived in, you have a house in Jerusalem. If you live there, you would put a tent up on the roof of your house. And they were very specific. There had to be a hole in the top of the tent so you could see the stars in the sky. And they would do that for one week. They would camp. And there was this huge water ritual, which is why Jesus talks about living water at the end, that the priest would go. And he would go to the pool of Siloam and he would dip this huge pitcher in, in this well. And he would bring water and he would raise it high. And the people would say, raise it higher. Because it was considered a huge blessing to see it when the priest pours out the water onto the altar. It's most popular of all of the feasts. So what the brothers are saying is saying, Jesus, if you're going to make it as a prophet, I mean, if you're going to make it as a superstar, you've got potential, Jesus. This is what they're saying. to him. You have potential. But you can do this in Galilee, but can you do it on the biggest stage of all? Can you win? Are you a winning quarterback in the Super Bowl? This is really what this is about. Jerusalem is the biggest stage, and Feast of Tabernacles is the biggest time. Can you pull it off then? We want you to go and do this. And so they push him. They say, go, go do this. Look at the words they use here in verses 3 and 4. It says, leave, go, do miracles, show yourself in public, show yourself to the world. They're pushing him to do these miracles and to show himself and to hurry up. But then check out verse number five. Does that strike? Did that strike anybody as odd? Do miracles, show yourself, do all this. But by the way, the brothers didn't believe in him. What is that's odd? We want you to do miracles. We want you to hurry up and get there because, man, you do. But they don't believe in him. Where does that come from? This is very, very strange. They believed in him, but they didn't really believe in him. Does that make sense? They believed in him, but they didn't. Really, and you know what their problem was? We'll see this in just a minute. They were worldly. They were worldly. They, like I've come to understand about myself as I studied this chapter this past week, is I am very worldly. I'm very worldly. And Jesus says this. And when it says that they didn't believe in it, they worldly. Now, worldly. We hear that word, maybe some of you are familiar with it, some of you, some of you that grew up in church maybe you're familiar with worldly. What does it mean to be a worldly person? Well, when I grew up in church, I was told as a teenager, stay away from worldly women, <laughs> worldly women. And I just thought to myself as a teenage boy, I don't know, I might want to meet one of these worldly women. <laughs> I might just want to say hello sometime. Yes. And I realized I don't know what worldly means because it, it, it doesn't mean what I thought. So that's where, that's where we're headed. But the context, the context of how we get into chapter 7 is tremendously important. John chapter 6, verse 66. This is the lead in. This is what happens just prior. This is everything. This means everything. So you see what it says right there? It says that from this time, Jesus preached a sermon on being the bread of life. The sermon did not go over well. Isn't it good to know that Jesus even preached a bad sermon according to what, that's right? You know, most pastors take Monday off, and the reason why is it's a good day to have a pity party for how bad you did on Sunday, right? So John 6, 66, and that's an interesting verse there. It's 6, that number, 666. It says, 
from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. That's the context. The brothers who if Jesus becomes the prophet, he becomes the Messiah, he has all this influence, he has all this power. You don't think they're going to ride his coattails? They didn't believe in him, but they wanted him to be a superstar. They didn't believe that he was God, but they wanted him and saw in him that he could be a superstar. And so when he loses all of these disciples at the end of chapter 6, they start to panic. Like, come on, you've got to get out there. Let's do some more miracles. Show yourself. Let's move, man. You're wasting time. Your stock is dropping. They were very worldly. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Lord, uh, be with us today as we look at this very important chapter. What does it really mean to be worldly? How does that choke Zoe in my own life? What does that look like, Father? Speak, please, in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so the brothers are very concerned that Jesus' influence is going down. The crowds are down. Offerings are down. Jesus' stock is dropping like a rock. And they're saying, you must do something. Now, look what Jesus says here in verses 6 through 11. Because this really helps to put in perspective what's going on. So Jesus says, therefore, Jesus told them, the right time for me has not yet come. For you, any time is right. What does that mean? Because we're told later, and we discussed this this past week in my community group, my Bible study group. He said, well, wait a minute. He said the right time's not coming. Then he turns around and goes. You might have caught that a few months ago when Brian read it. So what does that mean? There are two different Greek words for time. One is chronological. Like I'm going at one o'clock and you're going at two o'clock. Okay, we're good. But that's not the word that's used here. Another word in Greek for time is a manner in which you go. Now, that changes everything, doesn't it? So they said, we want to go and we want you to come with us and show yourself to the world and do a bunch of big miracles, make a big show, make a big splash, let everybody know you're there, Jesus, and let's get the stock going back up because we've, we've had a setback. We've lost a lot of disciples here. Let's do that. We want you to go in that manner. He says, I'm not going in that manner. I'm not going to go with the crowds of people. I'm going to go because the Father wants me to go in a very low-key way. That's the way I'm going. And that's why they're at odds, you see? That's why they're at odds, because they're going to do things their way. So he goes on. He says this, for you, any time is the right. Any way that you want, any manner in which you want to go to this feast is right for you because you're calling all the shots. But Jesus says, I'm not calling all the shots. The Father's calling all the shots because I don't live in a worldly way. I live in a spiritual way. I don't deny this world. I'm not doing that. But I, I'm keeping in mind God. Keeping in mind God. So he continues on. The world can't hate you. But it hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. Now the word hate in Greek is also a very different word. In our English language, hate is an absolute term. Hate. Hate you. Theirs, it's not absolute. What it basically means, to put it, to make it easy here, is Jesus is saying, you're perfectly in sync with the world. You think like the world. You do things like the world. You're totally in sync. The world can't hate you. It can't be out of sync with you because you're just married to it. And Jesus says, I'm not. I'm thinking about what's going on in this world, and I'm also thinking about what's going on with my father in the spiritual world, and I'm taking his cue, so I can't be in sync. We're out of sync. We're out of step. It's like we're dancing, and we're stepping on each other's toes. Does that make sense? So this is what he's saying. Again, point is you're living a very worldly worldly life now the word world is what this comes down to the word world 
word here for world means secularism. Secularism. Look, this is important. If, you, if I've lost you to this point, come back and listen to this, because this is what the whole message is about. This is what all John chapter 7, at least the beginning of it, is completely about. Secularism, or the word that we're using here for world that Jesus uses here, is this. This is all there is. This world that you see around you, this tangible, this physical world, this temporal world, this is all there is and there is nothing else. And you might say, but John, so many people that Jesus talked to, including his brothers, believed in God. How can you say that they're completely worldly? Because they lived like they were completely worldly. You know, saying you believe in something and actually living out are two totally different things, right? And so they're caught up in worldly living. So I want to contrast this morning, just briefly, just some bullet points, boom, boom, boom. What it means to kind of be worldly. And the other thing on the other side, I'm going to talk about gospel living. You could call, call it spiritual living or godly living or godly thinking or whatever you want to do. We've talked a lot about gospel. It's why have you chosen that word. And if you're brand new and you're like, what in the world do you mean by gospel? We did a whole series uh, in September and October uh, called Radical Shift, and we really got into to gospel. But let's just put it this way in case you missed all that. But you can listen to all of it on our website. But if you missed all that, it just basically means that you are thinking about God. You are truly believing in God and what he presents to us here, okay? So I want to contrast what does it mean to be worldly and what does it mean to be spiritual or gospel-centered according to this. So worldly says this is it. It simply says that this is it. You better get all you can right now because this is it. There's nothing else. This is it. And gospel living or gospel thinking says this is never it. This is never it. This is just a small slice of it. But there's much more it to come. And therein lies the massive difference. Very interesting how the Bible describes what it means to be worldly. Remember I said at the beginning, boy, man, stay away from worldly women, right? And so I had certain ideas of what I thought meant it meant to be worldly. And then all of a sudden, as I studied this chapter this week, I thought, oh, my goodness, wait a minute. I am the worldly person. Look how described, the Bible describes what it means to be worldly. It says in Mark chapter 4, Jesus is talking about the seed sown in the soil. He says, the one, the seed whom was sown among the thorns. What is that? What is that? These are the ones who have heard the word, but what? But the worries of this world. So when somebody struggles with worry, they're a worldly person. Not somebody who's sensual. Somebody who struggles with worry is a worldly person. That's what it means to be worldly, is I struggle with worry. In frustration, I have another one for you. 1 Corinthians 3, Paul is talking about what it means to be worldly. He says, brothers, I cannot address you as spiritual. You're not spiritually thinking, but as worldly, as mere infants. So what's happening here? When you're worldly, you're very limiting. You're limiting your growth a lot because you're seeing something very narrow, something very small. He goes on, I gave you milk, not solid food. For you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still what? What does he say? Worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? Mere men. Remember? It's a narrow view. This is it. Man, physical. This is it. That's what it means to be worldly. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not men? So what does it mean to be worldly? It means you're limited. It means you're full of frustrations. You're full of comparisons. You're full of gossip. You're full of strife because it's all about this. This is it. And this is all there is. When I looked at this past week, I realized I'm a very worldly person. I am a very worldly 
person. And that worldliness in my life is, ch- is choking Zoe. If I really want to live and have life, then I've got to get rid of the worldly thinking that I have. So let's contrast worldliness from spiritual or gospel. So here's three things, all right? First is this. Worldly living is marked by regrets. Regrets. Gospel living is marked by riches. Do you have any regrets? Do you have any regrets? Do you have anything you look back and say, oh, man, did that. I'll never get it back. Remember, Jesus and the disciples, I mean, his brothers are saying, Jesus, man, we've lost a bunch of followers, man. This is not good. Huge mistake. We've got to go quickly and get them back as quick as we can. He has a massive regret. They have a massive regret because Jesus has lost influence and power and opportunity. And he might not ever get that opportunity back again. Do you have any regrets? We bought our first house in like 1990. And we bought it here in Arlington, right off of Lee Highway. We got the deal of the century on that home. I mean, we bought that house cheap baby we for tens of thousands of dollars below market value and we stayed in that house like six or seven years and uh then we sold it we started having kids and we needed something a little bit larger and 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 we sold it what i did not realize is we did not need to sell that house in order to buy our next house we didn't need to do it we could have hung on to that first house because the mortgage was so low. We could have rented that thing. It's in Arlington. It's right off of Lee Highway near Roslyn. There'd be a line of people waiting to rent that house from us. And it would have paid off. It would be paid off. Everybody, that house would be paid off. It would have been paid off five years ago. And I would have that house free and clear. The house is right across the street from my mother-in-law's house. Now, When I go by, when I over the years have gone by that house, I look at that house and my wife will tell you this, my kids will tell you that, I'll point to that house, it pains me, and I'll say that's the biggest mistake I've made in my life. That's the biggest mistake. Which is really tough because I didn't want to go buy the house. I didn't even, you know what I'm saying, I didn't want to see it anymore. And I, you know, there's nothing I love more than visiting my mother-in-law. So it really (laughs) cramped our situations, what I'm trying to say to you, Okay. But I look at that house, everybody, I look at that house, and I say, it's the biggest mistake I've ever made in my life. Why do I say that? Because I'm very worldly, right? It's a regret, regret, massive regret. I've lost this. I'll never get it back. I look at that house. I'm telling you, I sit out there almost in tears saying, I'll never get it back. Look at this, a pot of gold sitting there. I am so stupid. Because you know why? Because I'm very worldly. And when we're worldly, we're very limited. I got to get all I can. I got to get it right now. So if I don't get it right now, I'll never get it back. That's worldly thinking. And that's what the brothers of Jesus are saying. You've got to get it now, man. Hurry up. Very, very limited. It's about, look, look, look. If you're a world, worldly person, you know that you're always going to make mistakes. Right? I mean, you might limit some, but here's the thing I want you to write in. When you're worldly, at some point you just say, man, I can't win. I, I, I mean, my goodness. I, I blew it with that house. I can't, I can't win. Somewhere, you're going to make a mistake. I'm going to make a mistake. We're all going to say it. Somewhere, I can't win. Here's what it is. If you're a gospel-living, gospel-thinking, spiritual person, you say, I can't lose. I can't lose because I lost that house, but I have a million more opportunities ahead of me because this isn't all there is. This is not 
all there is. See what Paul says in Romans chapter 8? He says, and he talks it. Before he says this in Romans chapter 8, the verse there is on, on, your, on your outline. He says, look, you're going to have good times, you're going to have bad times. But in all those times, good or bad, you are more than a conqueror. And you say, John, I don't feel like more than a conqueror. And the reason you and I don't feel like more than conquerors is because we're very worldly. Because we're looking at the temporal world, the physical world, the secular world, and saying, this is it. This is all there is. I better get what I can get, and I better get it right now. And that's what they're pushing, pushing, pushing Jesus for. Let's go to the next one, contrast. Worldly living is marked by impatience. Anybody impatient here? It's marked by impatience. Gospel living, godly living, godly thinking is marked by an infinite future. Infinite. Got all the time in the world. They're in a rush. Jesus, come on quickly. Go. Hurry. Get it. Right? I can't believe you're not married yet. I can't believe I'm not married yet. I can't believe I haven't got my degree yet. What is wrong with me? I feel terrible. I feel like a loser. I haven't got my degree yet. I haven't got my promotion. I don't know how they got that promotion because I'm far more qualified than they are to get the promotion, right? I haven't had my kids yet. I haven't retired yet. I'm in a time crunch. I'm losing time here. That's worldly thinking. Godly thinking, gospel thinking says, you know what? You got an infinite future. You got all of eternity, man. There's no limits. There's no bounds. It doesn't end. And when we think worldly, we rush ourselves. And what do we do? We make mistakes, don't we? We make bad mistakes. And Jesus' brothers were very worldly. And they're saying, Jesus, you better hurry up. Come on, come on. Let's go, let's go, let's go. You know what? A person who is very, very worldly, they're like somebody who's always trying to catch a bus. And they feel like they're missing it all the time. And they're just running, run, run, trying to catch a bus. Somebody who is a gospel-living, gospel-thinking person knows there's an endless supply of buses. And we're running crazy. You ever seen somebody running for a bus? And you're sitting there, you're watching them run for the bus. Oh, my gosh, look at them. And they're dropping stuff all over the place, you know, almost getting hit by cars, people beeping at them, stuff like that. That's you and me if we're worldly. That's us. That's what we're doing. We have an infinite future. Look what Jesus says in John 6, 51. I am the living bread that's come down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he's going to do what? Live forever. That forever is a very long time. It's an infinite, infinite future. Let's do this last one. Worldly living is marked by worry. I already said this before. If you're a person that's filled with worry, anxiety, fear, That comes from being worldly. Gospel living is marked by worship. We're told here in verse number 12 of John chapter 7. It says, all these people in Jerusalem at the biggest event, you know, who were people who didn't like Jesus or people who were hangers on to Jesus. Yet all kinds of people, big, huge mix of people, very popular, huge event. And they're like, oh, is he going to show up? And says they're whispering. Well, the word whispering there means to grumble. They're like worrying. Where is he? Is he going to get here? Come on. If we're ever going to have him become the Messiah and get rid of the Romans, he's got to do this thing. He's got to do it now. They were worried. They were filled with worry because they were very worldly, very, very worldly and impatient. Look what it says in 1 Corinthians 2, 9. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. That's our infinite future. You know, we talk a lot, wrongly, 
wrongly, because the Bible doesn't support this, that we think that one day heaven, you know, we're going to be up there in heaven with God and we're just going to be singing songs all day long, sitting on clouds, right? And most of us say, man, that is boring. Can I just, I don't want to, you know, I want to spend all the time because this is great, right? This world is great. Love this world. But that, that's not it. Isn't, isn't that interesting? We think that this is great, and we think that that's boring. Heaven is boring. And in actuality, and I want to get to sermon on heaven, but heaven's coming down. It's going to be here. It's going to be here on this earth. It's going to be like the Garden of Eden all over again. That's what the Bible describes to us. And what we're told here by Paul is it's going to be far better than you could ever even imagine. And, that's, and when you think about that, does that make you worry if you know that's your infinite future for all of those who believe in Jesus Christ? Does that make you worry? It makes you worship. You say, this is awesome. Now, let's transition for a second. So you say, okay, okay, John, I got it. I got it. You just want me to discipline my mind and think, oh, I, gotta th- I can't just think about this world. I got to think about heaven. I got to be heavenly minded is what you're telling me in church lingo. I got to be heavenly minded. And I got to discipline myself. You know, here's the problem with being heavenly minded, though I want you to do that. Here's the problem with it. It's exhausting. You try it for a while. Okay, I'm just going to live this life, you know, like I'm going to heaven one day and I got to think about that. And I just can't think that this is all is it. You try it. You do it for a while. And after a while, it's like running a marathon. You're like, man, can I just lay down and, and get something to drive? I'm just exhausted from trying to keep my mind so focused. We need help. And that's where Jesus helps us. We all need the gift of the Holy Spirit because we don't have power in ourselves to do it. And that's why Jesus turned, turns in John chapter 7 to the gift of the Holy Spirit. And my question to you is this, do you have the gift of the Holy Spirit that causes this living water to bubble up in you and just to flow? Do you have that? Because with the gift of the Spirit, you'll have strength to be able to keep a heavenly, a gospel mindset in living and not just live in this secular world. You'll be able to do that. Do you have the gift of Spirit? And I want to, in conclusion, just here real briefly, talk about the gift of the Holy Spirit, how important it is that we have it, and how it makes a difference in our lives. Do you have the gift of the Spirit? Jesus says here three things really clearly. Here is how you get the gift of the Spirit. Now, some of you have all kinds of ideas right now. You're thinking, oh, I've heard about that gift of the Spirit before. I don't know if I really want that. What's that mean? Okay, wait a minute. This might be a lot different. This might be a lot different than what you think, okay? The gift of the Spirit. So Jesus says, let me just read it to you, verses 37 to 39. Jesus stands up on the last and the greatest day of the feast, and he says, Jesus stood in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within them. By this, he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up until that time, the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not been glorified. Do you have the gift of spirit? First thing, you need three gifts to have the gift of spirit. The first one, you can't skip to two to get to three. You've got to start with one. Does that make sense? You have to start with one. I should have put the number one on it, on your outline. You have to start here. You can't start at two or three. You have to start here. You have to have the gift of thirst. You must absolutely have the gift of thirst in order to have the gift of the Holy Spirit. Thirsty people, think about this. Jesus, come to me, all of you who are thirsty. Let's just think for a second, really practically. Thirsty people, what's the deal with thirsty people? Here's the deal with thirsty people. They don't have something... They lack something, right? Thirsty people don't have something. Thirsty people lack something. And in that little difference makes all the difference in the world. Thirsty people 
lack something. This is critically important as a first step. I lack everything. If I'm thirsty and I don't have any water, water is the only thing that matters to my survival, right? And I lack it. So I lack everything. I don't have something. I lack something. Revelation 22 says, who gets into the city of God? Jesus says, the thirsty people get into the city of God. In Matthew 21, Jesus says this to the morally upright, the people who are living this like great life, moral, wonderful, moral lives. And he says to them, he says, the tax collectors and the prostitutes. Now, why does he say that? Because in their society, to be a tax collector or a prostitute means that you were with no hope. You, you couldn't go any farther down. There's no way to recover from that. Okay? He says, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they're getting into the kingdom of God before you. Why? Because they're thirsty. Because they lack something. They don't have something. We get the gift. If we have something, we don't get the gift of the Spirit. This is what Jesus is saying. If we have something, we don't get the gift of the Spirit. So let's, let's go back. Let's back up into the Old Testament, into Exodus chapter 17 a little bit, because that's where this whole water ritual comes from. You might remember water from the rock. Some of you remember that. They were in the desert, and they were extremely thirsty. They were going to die. They were so thirsty. They didn't have any water. There's not a lot of water in a desert, right? And there's a couple million of them, and so they needed water, or they were going to die. And so what did they do? Did they say, oh, God, could you please give us some water? You've been so kind and generous. No, 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 no. They're very worldly thinking. And they just started grumbling and complaining and worrying and fretting and yelling and screaming, and they sinned, and they sinned really badly, and they, they were mad at Moses. Taking it out on Moses, taking it out on God, taking it out, taking it out on everything. And so they were guilty. They were extremely guilty. And God says this to Moses. Here it gets really cool. He says, Moses, I want you to go get the elders, number one. And when he says go get the elders, that's like, this is like a court of law. It's like, okay, there's going to be some kind of judgment or justice that comes down. And go get the elders. Number two, which lets you know justice is getting ready to come down. Ready? Go get the staff. The staff. In Scripture, Moses' staff was the rod of God, the rod of judgment. And I want you to take people to Mount Horeb, all right? Mount Horeb is the same thing as Mount Sinai, where God's presence came down, where the Ten Commandments were written, okay? We, we, we're good? The, he says, go there to that rock, to that rock. Who's the rock in Scripture? Jesus is the rock. God is the rock. Jesus is the rock. And I want you to go there and stand before the people and raise the rod up. Now, okay, let's just say you and I are the crowd. You and I are the crowd. What are we? We're guilty. And there's that old boy, and he's got the rod of judgment up there. Well, you know, I'm like a little kid, and I know what's coming next, man. You know, my, my father has taken his belt off. That was in the good days when you could spank your kid, right? I'm sorry. I'm not saying I do it. It's saying it happened to me, all right? Go get a biggest switch you can get, right? Get the belt. Yeah, okay? Here it is. You're guilty. And they stood there knowing that they had grumbled and complained, knowing that all they had to stand there before God was nothing but guilt. And God says, take the staff. You know what he says? He doesn't say strike them. God is a God of justice. We have to have justice. Some people say, well, can't God just just forgive everybody? You know why? Because we don't want to live in a world where you just say, let's just forget everything that happened. Because you know why? That's a world of chaos. People just running rampant, doing anything they want, breaking every law and not getting locked up for it. Do you want to live in a world like that? You don't. God is a God of justice. There must be judgment. There's the rod. And then in the strangest turn of events, the most bizarre turn of events, God says, strike me. Strike the rock. Now, we talked about this a few months ago, that on the cross, the father struck Jesus, attacked Jesus, and killed him for us. He took our place. So we, they stood there with guilt all over their hands. 
They had nothing but God. They didn't have anything good to offer God. Hey, God, look what I got. You know, you should give me water. You should give me water. That's what religion says. Religion says you come before God and you say, look what I got in my hands. Now, will you give me some living water? But the gospel says you come and say, look, I don't have anything in my hands but guilt. Can I have some living water? You got it. Let me tell you a story from my life. I was about 10 years old, 11, something like that. We moved to a new neighborhood. And, uh, you know, you get in a new neighborhood and you meet new friends. And some of those friends are good. Some are bad. They lead you astray. It's all my friend's fault that I met. Uh, so they had an idea one day that uh, there was like this berry tree. It had like these really dark blue, almost purple berries. And um, we were going to throw them at cars. And we, we, had, we lived on a very narrow street. So it was like we had the, we had the cars like trapped bottleneck we just hammer the cars when they came by we came up with a whole kind of system for calling out different types of cars like if a car was white if the color was white because then the berries would really show up right we'd say oh here, here comes a big mama i don't know why we came up with this stupid stuff but we were 10 years old but if the car was a very large white car we say it's a big big mama well here comes a big big mama and we've got these berries and we had been throwing them all day long at cars just having a good time and we just lit that car up. I mean, it was like it was like raining berries on this car. And then, you know, you were waiting for it. It would have finally happened. Sure enough, it did. You hear the tires squeal, cars stop right in the middle of the street. And here comes the, here comes the guy. And he's angry because you can hear his anger the moment he opened the car door, right? You understand what I'm saying? It's just spewing out of him. Well, I'm new to the neighborhood, so I don't know all the nooks and crannies yet. And my friends go, and all of a sudden, they like turn between two bushes that you could not even see, and they were gone. I mean, they were gone. So I didn't know where to go, so I'm trying to hide for something. And I run down a driveway, and I get halfway down the road, and there's this massive dog. I'm not going down there, because like the devil's down there. I mean, this dog, ah! So I couldn't, so I stop in the driveway, and there's this tree. The tree is like this big around, right? It's like, and I just get behind it. Oh, Jesus, help me, Jesus, help me, Jesus, help me, right? I get behind him. Well, here comes the guy, and he sees me. You get out of it. And he's coming at you, good for nothing, lousy. And he's, you know, I can't cuss in church, but if I could, I'd tell you the words he's saying. He's just laying on me, man, just, you coming. Oh, man, I am just caught. And he's coming at me. And his hand comes, and he's getting ready to grab me. And then here comes Liz J. Liz J was about 18 years old, barely knew her. I was throwing the berries with her younger brother. Uh, she comes out of the house. She quickly figures out everything that's going on. Liz J was about six feet tall. She was a good size person. She was a good size. Okay? That day she looked about six foot five. And she took that guy, boom, you get back. Throws him back. Oh, praise Jesus. You know? <laughs> and she said that. Now I was, and he said, and so the guy says, he was throwing berries. And she looks at me and I, my hands were just covered, like stained, like it took months for me to get all that stuff on. All I had in my hands was my guilt. And she looked at that. I thought, oh, boy, she's going to hammer me now. She's gonna hammer. She turned to him and she said, don't you ever speak to him again in your life. If you have a problem, you'll deal with me. I'll take care of him. It was the most awesome gospel moment that I've ever <laughs> received. Now, 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 she protected me. She took the heat from me. She shut that boy down. He was afraid. He was scared to death of her. But she said, we're going to wash this car. And we went out. We washed that car. Now, this is the most important step, everybody. You're standing before God. 
Is there something in your hands that you're offering God and saying, hey, God, I'm offering this. You, you need to acknowledge what I'm offering you. This is a good thing. In your mind right now, is that you? Do you have something to offer to God? Because if there's anything in your hands, you won't get the gift of the Spirit. But if in, in your hands, if the only thing in your hands is your own guilt, your own shortcomings, you're on your way to the gift of the Spirit. That is a gift in itself, just to understand that. And that's the thing I want to come back to at the end in just a moment. We must, must, must have the gift of thirst. Second thing is this, the gift of belief. Do you have the gift of belief? I'm almost done. I believe I have to have nothing to offer God. Jesus' brothers felt they had something to offer God, everybody. We have to know we have nothing. Instead, I believe this. This is what I believe, and this is what they did not believe. The brothers did not believe this. Jesus has everything, and they have nothing. The difference between worldly and being spiritual. Jesus has everything, and I have nothing. Have you given your life to Jesus Christ? I hear that all the time. I've said that myself many times. Have you given your life to Jesus Christ? If you haven't given your life to Jesus Christ... Don't do it. Do not give your life to Jesus Christ. This is so subtle. It sounds awesome. Man, on X date, I gave my life to Jesus Christ. Woo! You know what's interesting in the Gospel of John? God does all the giving. A hundred percent of the giving. He gives life, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave. He gives life. He gives water. God gives. God gives. You know what people, you and me do? You know what we do? We do 100% receiving. So I say I give my life to Jesus Christ. That means I've got something to exchange here. There's something in my hand. I have something. God has something. I have something. We do in exchange. That's not the way it works, and that's not how we get the gift of the Spirit. You want the gift of the Spirit, and you have to know that Jesus has everything, and you give nothing. All you're doing is receiving. You check it out. Read it through the Gospel of John. There's only receiving going on. You have to believe. Not like the brothers did. Eventually, the brothers did believe later on. But you have to believe that Jesus has everything, all the cards, and you hold absolutely nothing. Last one is this. Okay? It's going to be a little different. You must have the gift of irresponsibility. You must have the gift of irresponsibility. Can I just read you verse 39 again, okay, from this? So it says, by this, Jesus meant the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And by the way, all of Jesus' teachings from now, not all of them, but much of them, just focus totally on the Holy Spirit. Got to have the Holy Spirit in your life, right? By this, Jesus meant the Holy Spirit, whom, who, those, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Now, here it comes. Up to that point in time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not been glorified. What does it mean to glorify Jesus? It means crucified on the cross, died on the cross, suffered, beaten mercilessly on the cross, and died and suffered for you and for me. It is hard to look at, to really think about what Jesus Christ went through for you and I, and to say that God owes us anything. You must have the gift of irresponsibility. I'm going to close with a story, and here, here it is. Uh, a million years ago, I worked at a church, and we had a number of very sweet older ladies. Let's put it that way. Okay? One of them. And, and I can remember one in particular. For 40 years, maybe 50 years, everybody, she held that whole church together. She cooked, she cleaned, she served, she taught Sunday school, she changed diapers, she answered phones, she did deposits, you name it, she did. She was at every service, she did everything. There's nothing she did not do. 
And you'd see that little lady in church. You'd say, oh, she's just so sweet. She's just so sweet and wonderful and serving. She wasn't. She wasn't sweet. She wasn't wonderful. She was bitter. She was mean and she was angry. And man, if you got on her wrong side, she'd just let you have it. She was frustrated. You know why she was frustrated? Because she had done so much for God and so much for that church. God and the rest of the church owed her. So when the pastors of the church, and there were multiple pastors, and I happened to be one of them, didn't quite visit her enough, was that okay? No, it wasn't okay. She was angry, and she let everybody know, what is wrong when you're not visiting me? Why? Because we owed her. The church owed her. God owed her. Everybody owed her. I'd sit with her, man, she'd grit her teeth and stuff like that. She got Alzheimer's. And everybody, I, you, you probably know some. You got a family member. So what, okay, my grandfather had Alzheimer's. So bear with me, okay? Because what I'm getting ready to say, I'm not meaning to anyway. Don't think I'm taking it lightly. I'm just going to tell you this story. She got Alzheimer's. When she got Alzheimer's, she began to change. For the better, significantly better. She couldn't remember anything anymore. I'd go to visit her. She couldn't remember all the great stuff she did for church. She couldn't remember all the great, incredible stuff that she had done for God and how God owed her and God was responsible to her in some way, shape, or fashion. She couldn't remember that. You know what else she couldn't remember? She couldn't remember the last time I visited her. She had no clue when I'd been there last. I showed up. It was like a gift from heaven. Oh, my gosh, John, you're here. I haven't done anything for the church. I haven't done anything for you. I don't know when the last time you were here, but here you are now. It's like a gift. She became the happiest, most wonderful person I have ever met in my life. She became from cantankerous to happy. She was a joy. I couldn't visit her enough now. She was awesome. She made me feel great when I went to visit her. It was awesome. She had Alzheimer's ecstasy. We have to have that gift of irresponsibility, everybody. We must have the gift. We think somehow God owes us. You're, living a, you're trying to live a morally upright life. You're trying to do some good stuff. And it's somewhere in your thinking, God owes you. It's just human. It's just natural. God owes you. I'm telling you, that's the way to just choke Zoe in your life. All right, we're going to do communion here. I'm going to explain it. Those, the music team and those serving communion... Just go ahead and get in place. I'm going to talk logistics for just a second, and we're almost done. Because there's something really important I want you to consider doing during this communion time as we end. So let me tell you, if you're, if you're new, what's getting ready to happen. So our communion, uh, we have five different locations. One's here, one's there. There'll be one there, there, and there. Five locations. There'll be a cup, and there'll be a plate with some bread on it. A little thin wafer. It's almost, it's almost like eating air. Uh, and you'll go, everybody, and you'll take the piece of bread and you'll step over to the cup, and you'll quickly dip it, and you'll stand back, and you'll either eat it right there, or you'll go back to your seat, and you eat it. Okay, that's logistically what we do. Dip, and then move on. This represents the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. So it's an extraordinarily important moment. Matter of fact, Jesus Christ says that when you celebrate communion, when you celebrate communion, I will be with you in a very special way. It's a very sacred moment. Communion here at Grace is open to absolutely everybody. Absolutely everybody. That's between you and God. 
That's not between you and me or anybody else in this room. It's between you and God. You want to take communion? You're more than welcome. You don't want to take communion? That's, that's totally fine, too. Here's what I want to encourage you to do. This is really important. We all need the gift of the Spirit. We need the gift of the Spirit. I want to ask you, as you take communion this morning, is if you would sincerely pray, say, God, give me the gift of thirst. We're not going to have the gift of spirit unless we have the gift of thirst. And that gift, the gift of thirst, is a gift from God. You can't make yourself thirsty. It all comes from God. It's all him. Say, Lord, today, would you bless me with the wonderful gift of thirst that I might overflow with your living water of the Holy Spirit in my life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you that your word is so very practical and it just hits home. It just hits home. Bless the eating of this bread and the drinking of this cup. And almighty God, may you bless every single one of us in this room with an unbelievable thirst for you. In Jesus' name, amen.